Well, hi. <laughs> it's been a long time since we rock and rolled. All right, it's episode 58 of the Great Divide podcast. We are back after recovering from our biggest deep dive ever in the history of this podcast, of mankind, in fact, of the Buffalo Skinners. Uh, we hope you guys enjoyed that. We, we certainly did, but it was, it was draining. And um, just, just as a little debrief of that, I think, and we mentioned this on the Facebook page, but uh, I think Svine and I were both surprised that that actually exceeded our deep dive of steel town and and by the way i'm with Svine. <laughs> so is here are, are you sure you've recovered from it yeah maybe not i'm shaking off a little rust here still <laughs> no i i think you were more surprised at the length than i was to be honest i i um just for the fact that the buffalo skinners has more songs and we also knew we were going to go into the b-sides a little bit uh, and also, if you count uh, the round table, which after that was done at a glorious two and a half hours, I kind of knew that the standard had been set. So <laughs> there you go. But uh, that was uh, th- those were good episodes. Not not every deep dive is uh, is 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 great necessarily. I think compared to how we've been going, I mean. The, the first one seemed a little tame now. John Wilbur on our page actually mentioned, he said, like, uh, he had a great comment. And, like, if you go back to the first one we did, um, which was, uh, what was it? No, no Place Like Home. No Place Like Home, yes, of course. He said it was more like uh, dipping your toes in than a deep dive compared to what we've done. And he's completely right. Yeah, it's true. It's gotten out of hand, man. we got to <laughs> rein it in for the next one. Yeah, I'm sure we will. We shall see. But... Um, we're glad you guys enjoyed those and we got a lot of good comments about it. So thank you. And especially thank you to those who, who submitted speak pipes because those added a ton to the show. So thank you for that. Yeah. And, um, we have a, we have a different kind of show today. Uh, we're, we're, um, going to be talking to a special guest and his name is Martin Warner. He was known as Martin Summers back in the early days of the band. And what he did was he ran country club magazine from issue three through issue seven. And that might not seem like a lot of issues. He was a young kid at the time, but he's got a ton of great stories. And as I say this, we've already interviewed him, um, and we're going to be bringing that to you in just a minute. But we we wanted to talk a little bit about Country Club uh, magazine and, in fact, the other big country fanzines, too, and and what they meant to us. Because before the Internet, before this social media uh, society that that we have... The only way to get information about the band was through fanzines like this. And um, it's just a very quick story about how I got involved with Country Club. Um, I didn't I didn't even join until the 90s. Like, I think it was 1990 when it was when the Heart of the World single came out. I had thought Big Country had broken up and I had sort of accepted that. And then someone told me that they had a new single out, Heart of the World. And I went out and got that, and I looked on the back, and I saw an address to write to the Big Country fan club. And I don't know why it never hit me before, but it just hit me like, I have to join this. I have to find out what they're doing. Who's this new guy, Pat Ahern? I don't know who this is, what's happened. And um, I remember getting the first issue of Country Club, and it was the one leading up to the No Place Like Home release. And they 
they mentioned the track listing of the new album. And uh, so it was incredible for me because I went from thinking the band had broken up to getting a new single and now getting a track listing for a new album that was coming out. And and also seeing that Mark Brzecki was going to be playing on it. So that was that was nice, too. But um, yeah, th- those fanzines, then those magazines were like a, a real lifeline to me. And I'm sure to a lot of you at the time who were waiting for any news of the band. And uh, Svine, when did you, when did you join and did you join and what did uh, what did Country Club mean to you at the time? Well, first of all, I think every big country fan, no matter where you live, knows about Country Club magazine because they were present in the liner notes from a very early date. So, uh, being someone who grew up in the eighties, didn't necessarily have tons of albums like like every kid has these days. You read your liner notes and you study everything meticulously. And Country Club is there, album after album after album. And like yourself, I never really did much with it until way later. So uh, I uh, actually, this is true for a lot of bands back the a lot of bands you follow and you see these fan club things. And it never occurred to me to write to a single one of them and put money towards fan club membership at the cost of buying more albums because money in the 80s for me was <laughs> rare <laughs> scars <laughs> uh, it was precious so uh, uh, country club i never was a member and i don't have a single issue and everything i've seen was in the 90s when people sent me scans of copies on the big country mailing list <laughs> you were a fanzine bootlegger a fanzine bootlegger yeah, that, that's that's exactly right I've never paid for it. I've never supported it financially. I've just leached of others <laughs> hard-earned membership monies and gotten uh, copies that way. <laughs> so in '94, '95, I would uh, I would see a lot of them. And people had websites too, so I think they just put put selected pieces up, and a lot of stuff appeared online uh, too that you would find in Country Club. And of course, at that point, I think with the invention of internet, a lot of those old style. Uh, fan clubs kind of went out of fashion because now you had the perfect forum and you could get information quicker and you had a different way and you could even interact directly with the band. So uh, before I I got the chance, it was a moot point. Interesting. Well, that's all right. At least you you saw them. But uh, yes, yeah. I mean, for me. You know, as I said before, all the, before I even discovered a, the online community, it was really um, a special day when that issue came. And and you, what's funny about it is if you go back and read all the issues, and by the way, you can find every single Country Club issue in PDF format on John's uh, John Guvea JF and G's incredible Big Country Info site. Just go to BigCountryInfo.com and look under publications, and you can find not only all the issues of that. Uh, the official fanzine, but also the issue, every issue of every other fanzine, including uh, the American All of Us fanzine, uh, Inwards, and We Save No Souls, all of which are really worth reading. Um, gives you a lot of great insight into the time period. But uh, yeah, I mean, when when I joined, someone named Jan Bremner was running the, the uh, country club, and she was a very nice lady. I corresponded with her a couple of times. And in fact, I actually became a part of country club for for a period of time. Um, if anyone remembers a, a terrible column that used to appear in that magazine called The Yankee Speaks, that was written by me. <laughs> and I used to I used to write uh, write that column, and it was just kind of meant to be a, a comedic kind of 
editorial take on the big country news of the day. And <laughs> I go back and read some of those now, and I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> you succeeded. It's very funny. <laughs> well, that's good to know, I think. <laughs> um, I actually got a couple letters from people about that thing, which was which was exciting at the time. <laughs> oh, wow. But, uh, yeah, that, that was fun to do. I, I remember just writing Jan and saying, would you would you be up for me uh, writing something for the magazine? And she's like, sure. And after talking with Mar Martin, as you'll hear, I can see why <laughs> they they just wanted to fill pages. Um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 funny. It, it was a great magazine, but it, the one thing about it, it was it was almost always, at least when I was a, a member, it was almost always really late. And when I go back and look at the magazines and have read them, almost every single one begins with. We're very sorry this issue is so late. <laughs> and that's a tradition we have continued on the podcast. <laughs> that's right. Well, you, no one's paying for this, so, you know, they can't complain. <laughs> no, that's why we can't charge them for this. Yeah. Ever. Exactly. No, but uh, one, one um, like I remember this story 10 seconds ago, so I'll tell it. But uh, <laughs> I actually joined a different type of uh, thing that kind of put me off investing in uh, in fan club memberships i joined the manor fan club <laughs> And the membership package I got was so piss poor. It was like a four-page, I, I guess you can call it kind of a membership paper. I, I use that word very lightly. And uh, a button, uh, the ugliest button I've ever seen that fell apart as, as it fell out of the package. And some sort of uh, merchandise sheet. Of course, that was uh, the most important and prominent thing. They wanted me to spend more money on stuff. It was just nothing. And I thought, I paid for this. This is crap. Of course, looking back now at uh, the big country publication, it was a totally different quality. And there was actually some news in it and uh, more input from the band members, which yeah. is the big thing from all those magazines. So, uh, Did it come with an official packet of Manowar stench? <laughs> that would have been a sort of up, up class version of what I actually ended up getting. And, bef and before this, actually, this, this you, you can evaluate if you want to put this in there, but... Back in the 80s, I actually got involved in the Norwegian fan club of KISS because oh, wow. that was run by two friends of mine that lived in the same area. And they approached me in sort of a recess at school uh, back in those days. And they said, Sven, we're working on this fan club. Yes, I know. I said, right. Would you be interested in helping? <laughs> so they had started feeling the burden. So they, they were like the Jackie to my Martin uh, which we'll hear in the story that they were also looking to offload some work and, and get involved. And I think I wrote a little piece and then uh, I sensed, uh, no, I, you know what? I think uh, this is more work and, and less fun than I sort of was presented to me. So so I left it. So I sort of from, from that inside, I just now I, 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 I kept it at that. Oh, that's great. That's funny. Well, yeah, I mean, and we still rely on the Country Club. The, the great thing about it is that we still rely on it for a lot of our shows. I think you and I both go back to it when we're yes. doing a certain topic, and there are great nuggets of information in there. So so we just want to thank, if anyone else is listening who was associated with the Country Club, uh, we just want to thank you for the work that you did, because that meant a lot. That meant a lot to me as a fan, and, and it was an incredible thing to get that, and um, especially living in America where during a time when Big Country was – 
non-existent, you know, as, as far as uh, American music buyers or American radio, et cetera, were concerned. And to get information was just about them was, was wonderful. And then thankfully, shortly after that, the whole internet thing exploded. But we wanted to talk um, to someone and I tried to get a hold of Jan Bremner. I wasn't able to find her and some other people, but I, um, funnily enough, the person that we wanted to talk to was right under our nose the whole time, Martin Warner. He was a member of our page, and I didn't realize that he had been associated with Country Club. Uh, John Govea told me about him, contacted him, and he was more than happy to join the show. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy um, the stories that he has to tell because he has a lot of great stories about the very early days of Big Country. I mean, he was a 19-year-old kid who loved the skids and followed uh, Stuart into his new venture of big country and just happened to um, fall into running the country club. And um, he did a great job, but I think he found out as a kid that uh, once big country hit it big, as you'll hear, it went from uh, a very small membership over almost overnight to hundreds and thousands of, of people involved. So I don't want to jump on any of his great stories, so I'll just stop there. But uh <laughs> It's a really great uh, interview, and he he tells the stories fantastically. So just lean back. I think we'll we'll play the interview now. Here we go. Okay, so we have a very special guest today, and a lot of you who are longtime fans will hopefully remember the Country Club early issues. And we've got someone who was a part of the Country Club. In fact, he ran the Country Club from issue three to seven. Is that correct, Martin? That's right, yep. Okay, and this is Martin Warner. He's going to give us a lot of stories about the early days of the country club and big country. So, Martin, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here, Thomas. Very nice to be here. It's fine. Thanks very much for inviting me. Well, thank you. How are you doing, Martin? I'm good. I'm good. Nice to talk to you. Okay, well, Martin, um, some of you might, some people might remember you as, as Martin Summers, correct? That's that right, yeah. I was born, very simply, I was born Martin Warner. My mother married when I was... Uh, a baby to a chap who wasn't my dad, but he brought me up as his son, and so my name was changed. But when I got to my mid-twenties, I changed it back to Warner. So, uh, yeah, it caused a bit of confusion when I reached out to a few big country people back in the late 90s. And they thought, who are you? And I said, no, Martin <laughs> Summers, but Martin Warner, same person. Oh, so on, on the early magazines, yeah, it is Martin Summers. Oh, great. So tell us a little bit um and we're going to talk about all this stuff in more detail but give us a little timeline as to when you were involved in the country club magazine yeah sure uh, essentially when the skids when stuart left the skids in 1981 um they then released uh, an album called uh, joy which uh, was a, an interesting album um but i just kept an eye on the music papers there was a music paper in england at the time called sounds and i used to buy it every thursday and religiously flick through it to see if there was any mention whatsoever of anything that uh, stuart might be doing and i remember there was a very very small article that he was playing uh, a, a concert with his new band big country uh, and it was somewhere in um dunfermline and i thought oh so he's got a new band and that would have been i'd say early 82 that that would have been uh, the case then they did a they did a concert in London uh, in some pub in Clapham, which I managed to miss completely. I had no idea they were doing this concert. I was gutted when I read a, a very very favourable review of the concert um, a, a couple of days later. 
But what it did mention was that they were releasing their first single, which was, of course, Harvest Home. I went and bought a copy of it, and uh, I remember at the time, um, Harvest Home, the the single production, to my mind, was a little bit messy. It was it didn't it wasn't very well recorded, in my opinion. And I loved Balcony, the B side. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. But the thing was, is I was such a huge fan of Stuarts anyway that I, I played the thing to death. And then a couple of weeks later, out came um, the twelve inch version. Which was uh, that had the, the track "Swimming Flag of Nations" on it, which of course was the baseline for "A Thousand Stars," which um, featured on their first album. So I then, as I said, kept an eye on the music papers, and it really was in those days a case of when the music paper came out on a, a Thursday, you'd immediately go to the the back where you'd have page after page after page of of concerts that were being uh, being advertised. And there was a venue in London called the London Lyceum, uh, just off the Strand. And there was a band playing called A Certain Ratio. And they were being supported by, guess who, Big Country. <laughs> so I toodled along. Now, that would have been about October 82. So first time I saw Big Country, absolute throw to bits, fantastic. There was probably about three people in the audience who were interested in them. I, I was one of them. I don't think anybody else was there for them. Having said that, I don't think many people were there for a certain ratio either. I remember it was very, very sparsely uh, uh, populated venue. So that was great. And then um, a few weeks later, Paul Weller from The Jam. Oh, yeah. He was a big fan of the Skids, huge Skids fan. And uh, I, think, I think himself and Stuart knew each other. And uh, Big Country were invited to play um, the Wembley shows of the Jam's last ever concerts in December 82. So I don't know how well you guys know the Jam, but the Jam at the time were a band who never really broke America. I don't think they broke Europe very much, but they um, they were massive in, in England or, or in the UK, I should say. And they did a load of concerts all around the country as a farewell tour. And I think they did five or six dates um, at, at Wembley Arena in London and Big Country were supporting them. Presenting to you, live and direct from Woken Surrey, often imitated, never duplicated, the Jam! And I, from memory, I think I went to about three or four of them because my best friend at the time was a huge jam fan, so he loved the jam and I was going along to see Big Country. <laughs> and I remember um, one of the, the concerts, I noticed that fanzines number one and two of the Country Club were for sale, tucked away with all the jam merchandise. And uh, so I bought, a, I bought a copy of each. And then I went round to the uh, stage door and stood there for 
what seemed like an eternity. And eventually Tony Butler came out and signed my programs. And that was it. That, you know, that, that was fantastic. I, I was pleased with that. And then about, I think it was about a week later. I mean, you can check this in, in the magazines themselves, but they played uh, with Spirit Destiny. And that's where I, um, my, my stepbrother was at the bar after Big Country set. And uh, there, was this, there was this lady standing there who had a, a sweatshirt with Big Country written on it. And he said, oh, my, my, my stepbrother's a big fan of yours, loves the band, etc., etc." And what he didn't realize is he was talking to Tony Butler's wife, Jackie. And Jackie uh, was a trained journalist, and she put together issues one and two. And when you look on the, um, when, you know, when you look on the credits, she was then Jackie Whitburn. That's that's uh, she, so she's Tony's wife. You know, I saw that and, name when I was looking through the issues, yeah. and I noticed that. And then I I read um, something that it Jackie was Jackie's. Butler. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, same person. And Jackie. Uh, she was lovely. I mean, Jackie was absolute delight. So what happened was that Jackie did issues one and two. And I said to her, you know, I'd love to be involved in, in the fan club. And uh, oddly enough, by bizarre coincidence, she was looking to to move away from it and get somebody else involved. So the, the timing was very good. So there's a bit of a quantum leap from then to issue three because issue three was about three months later so do you want me to talk about issue three or do you want me to fill in the bit in between how do you want to do that well let me take you back to the skids days if i could yeah of course i love the skids i know Svine does too we never got the chance to see them in fact i never even heard of them until i had been a big a fan of big country for a while so You've seen the band. You saw the skids. What was that like? What was that whole... Oh, they were brilliant. Oh, they were superb. My love affair started in early 79 when they released Into the Valley. I saw them on top of the pops, which was, which was, in the late seventies, that was the only music program on terrestrial television. I mean, you didn't have MTV, you didn't have anything. I'm guessing, chaps, I'm probably a bit older than you. I'm, I'm fifty-two, so I'm guessing you two are a bit younger. Yeah, so late we, late forties. Yeah, so yeah, so the skids would have been in that brief period. You would have been sort of ten or eleven. I was fifteen. I thought they were great. And um, I saw them um, late 79, first concert I ever went to, and they were promoting Days in Europa. And they were, they were, they were very, very, very good live acts. Um, but never, they, they, they didn't, they didn't, they weren't as successful as they could have been, shall we say. Mm. And um, Richard Jobson, who I've met quite a few times since the whole big country skids army show thing, you know, I've met him a few times since. And he had, he was a highly, highly intelligent man who had interests elsewhere. And as a result, the, the music for the skids and then the army show, yes, it was a central part of his life, but he, he, he moved down to London, Stuart stayed in Dunfermline. So the pair of them, their working relationship, um, it was 400 miles apart in terms of distance. And 
it just didn't work. It just didn't work. Stuart was of the two of them. He was definitely the the musician's musician, if you like. Whereas Richard had ideas of going into media because Richard was a successful TV presenter for a long time. He um, was a, a clothes model, very very successful. And that kind of looking back on it, that was quite. It was quite apparent towards the end of the skids that Richard his. His, his ambitions and where he wanted to take his life didn't necessarily centre around releasing eight or nine skids albums. Mm. No, that so makes that's sense. why, yeah, and that, Stuart got disillusioned with it and Stuart left, I think he left the band in about 81, I think, from memory. So there you go. But yeah, I love the skids, still love the skids. Uh, my son, who's 21, thinks the skids are great. He, he's played, you know, he plays a lot of their stuff. They, their first... Three albums were amazing, superb. Days in Europa, uh, Skeds Dance, and, and The Absolute Game were, were fabulous albums. Well, what was, uh, if you can remember, and I'm, I know I'm kind of going off yeah, on sure. a, sk- a Skids tangent here, but I, I'm so interested. Um, what, was, what was it like when you first saw Stuart playing guitar live? I mean, was that sort of a revelation to you that this was someone who was very different than the traditional guitar hero that you might think of? Uh, I mean, no. Really, no. The thing was, is I didn't grow up in a household steeped in music. We didn't have a record player. My parents were not interested in music at all, which is a bit odd because my parents are both Irish, mm. and you know a lot of Irish traditional music. Well, that was completely absent from my upbringing. No interest in music whatsoever. So when I saw Stuart for the first time, and um, I mean, I thought he was the greatest guitarist to ever strap on. A Stratocaster. I thought he was amazing, but I had no point of reference. I didn't, you know, I I hadn't grown up with the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or Jimi Hendrix, so I hadn't. I I didn't have something to compare him to, if that makes sense. And also, at the time of the Skids, when they came in on the back end of the whole punk new wave thing. And the musical genre that was kicking in in the late 70s, early 80s in Britain was a lot of keyboard-based stuff with Spandau Ballet, Tube Army or Gary Newman, Depeche Mode. So Stuart was kind of, there weren't that many bands of that particular era, you know, that sort of two or three year window that you would define as guitar-based bands with the result that Stuart's guitar playing wasn't the it wasn't the main thrust or the main focus of the band if they weren't they weren't essentially a guitar based band in the way that big country became right yeah that makes sense interesting i just want to ask you about uh when uh, when stuart left skids yeah uh, obviously for for people like tom and myself who we we just go yes he's now going to form our band big country but i just want to ask you as a skids fan at the time how did people like yourself, being Skids fans, feel at that time? Or was there a feeling like, they'll, of course, they'll continue without him? Or, of course, well, it's now got, Stuart? Well, you've got to remember that um, in terms of information, we were entirely dependent on a weekly magazine. There, there, was, there was three newspapers that came out. There was um, Enemy, New Musical Express, there was Melody Maker, and there was Sounds. And everything, and, and then there was Record Mirror came after that 
So everything you read about a band was entirely dependent on the whim of the journalists covering that band. Mm. And when Stuart left the skids, it wasn't um, it wasn't earth shattering news as far as the music um, the music uh, press were concerned. That it was it was kind of a passing. Oh, Stuart Adamson has left the skids, and that was kind of it. It wasn't the same as the breakup of the Beatles or or um, something along those lines. It, it was kind of not meant that many people realised, and it's a terrible thing to say, but not that many people, I think, felt it had an impact on their lives. And, yeah, a few months later, the skids released Joy, and um, prior to releasing that, they, they released Feels as um, a single, and I thought Joy would be, I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever heard Joy or if you own a copy. Oh, yeah. Or, yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember when I, I got Joy home and I put it on the record player that I bought. And, you know, I had a record collection of about five albums at that point, most of which were by the skids. And I, <laughs> I put Joy on and I was absolutely horrified. I just thought, um, I thought, God almighty, what is that? And I remember <laughs> there was one track... Um, that'll come to me in a minute. And I just thought, you joke that, I mean, I'll have to go and look at my CD collection in a second. Um, the, the Wanderer, that was it. The Wanderer told me of Galleon Shores. And I thought, what is that? <laughs> and then there was a lot of Celtic stuff in it. But, Iona, the, uh, the album track Iona was oh, yeah. fabulous. Blood and Soil was great, you know, and some of the, um, some of the, the, the like, uh, Men of the Fall was really good. Iona was the standout track of the album, and hey ho, guess who played guitar on it? Stuart. <laughs> That's right. But it was almost as if it was Richard Jobson and Friends, that album. I mean, that Skids album is, to my mind, not a Skids album, because Stuart's involvement in it was just one track. And, odd, but oddly enough, then they came, you know, Richard Jobson, fair play to him and fair play to Russell Webb, a, a really nice guy. Russell's a lovely fella. And they, they came back with a brilliant album with the um, Waiting for the Floods by the Army Show. Mm. So they moved off in one direction. Yep. Stuart yeah. goes back to Dunfermline, hooks up with Bruce. They get themselves into, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the rehearsal studio and start putting some stuff together. Were you aware at all of the first incarnation of Big Country or did you become aware of them? I was aware. I was aware insofar as reading about it. Okay. Reading about it because, um, yeah, there, there, was a, there was a picture of them taken in. It, it looked like it was they were in some sort of indoor skiing thing in Dunfermline. <laughs> and, of course, there was the two brothers that were in the band, one of whom has since begun, become a famous politician here in Britain. Right. And, yeah, and uh, I never saw them, and they were kicked off the Alice Cooper tour, in 80 well it has to be 82 it has to be 81 82 mm -hmm. but no i didn't get to see them at all as that uh, that version but yes when they released harvest home and i had the single and there's a picture of the you know stuart bruce mark and tony on the front i was aware that that was the second incarnation of the band but yeah no never saw the uh, ne never saw them as a five piece Do you know, i don't think they actually played yeah, they did. They played in Brighton supporting Alice Cooper and, and he had them booted off the tour. So 
that but no didn't see them at all so it was a case of with big country it literally was a case of having to keep a very close eye on the papers because you had no other means of knowing that a band was going to be playing locally to you especially if you lived in london because if you think about how many different venues there are in london where you go from pubs all the way up to eight eight ten thousand seat arenas there is no record state, uh, sorry, there's no radio station in London that's going to, back in the 70s and 80s, say, right now, everyone, pin your ears back. This is a list of four or 500 concerts that's taking place this weekend. <laughs> right. You'd have to religiously go through the paper and, and, che- and check and check and check again. And that's how um, I ended up going to see uh, Big Country supporting Spirit of Destiny, which is quite good because I liked Spirit of Destiny. I thought they were a great band. And that's where I met, well, I'd met Stuart when he was in the skids. I'd met him a few times backstage where, you know, you hang around the stage door and you get to, you get invited in. So I'd met him a couple of times before that. Um, But to actually meet, it was Stuart, Tony and Bruce were at the bar. And it literally was a case of going up and having a chat to them. And I was at Sixth Form College at the time doing A-levels, very, very bored, didn't want to be at college. And to me, it was great. It was a great opportunity to leave college and go and do something else. And uh, I literally asked Jackie, I said, do you want some help running the fan club? And she said, yeah, because unbeknownst to me, she was looking to offload it onto somebody else anyway, because <laughs> she didn't want she didn't have the time or the, uh, the inclination to to run it on any sort of basis. So when I took over the, the running of the fan club, it had 20 members wow. and I wrote to each one of them I wrote to each one of them individually handwritten letters I wrote to them introducing myself oh my goodness 20, uh, 20 members I even remember the name of the first member was a chap called Roland there you go <laughs> and Roland lived in Red Hill in Surrey and Roland was 24 <laughs> And, he, and, the, and the second one was a chap called Alan Urquhart who lived in Edinburgh God, how do I remember this? And uh, I remember when uh, a few months later I was selling T-shirts on one of their tours, people would come up to me and say, hello, I'm so-and-so, I'm member number (laughs) 008 or I'm member 0012. You wrote to me back in December. (laughs) But the funny thing was is that um, Jackie had them all in a little book and she had their, their name, their address and their age. And... uh, that was it, really. And when I, she handed me the book and she said, right, reach out to that little lot. And at the time, Harvest Home, Harvest Home had been and gone. I mean, it didn't sell very many copies. And, um, yeah, it was, there you go, there's the fan club. And um, we've released two issues of the magazine already. We're going to make a start on issue three, but it won't be out till about February, March time. And uh, off we went. And that's that's how it all started. Now, now were you given any sort of directive as to how they wanted things to be run, what kind of information they wanted? Did you work with uh, Ian Grant um, as well through this process? I mean, was what was his involvement like? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is where, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it was a massive buzz for me. It was fantastic. But, yeah, looking back at it, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. <laughs> I did not have a clue. And Ian, Ian was Ian was a nice enough fella, but 
getting the fan club off the ground wasn't top of his list of priorities. Why should it be? He wanted to do the best for the band. And the, the, the fan club... <laughs> Yeah, it was it, it was in and it was interesting because yeah, I, I I was nineteen. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, <laughs> and it showed it showed very very quickly. Well, I don't know. I think you're a little harder on yourself because I went back and reread a lot of those issues uh-huh. and um and thinking about what you had written in the in I think issue fifty or whatever when you kind of came back and wrote something about your time there and uh and i thought you wrote very well especially for a 19 year old so <laughs> did they put that in did they put that in i didn't know that yeah the the thing that you wrote um oh, yeah remembrances that. of an ex-editor <laughs> yeah that was in there really yeah that's oh, how you have to send me that i didn't know i remember sending something to ian a couple of years ago but i didn't know that it was that's used. it in fact you can find oh. it it's on um it's on john Gouveia's website bigcountryinfo.com He's actually got every uh, single issue of the Country Club in PDF format. Really? Yeah. Well, what I do know is is that we banged out seven ep- issues in just over a year, and I think it kind of fell off a cliff after that. I don't think they kept seven issues a year up for, for very long. And we, we certainly got the issues out the door. I remember that. That's so but funny. But I didn't know I was in... I was in issue 50, am I? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny that you didn't know it. That's amazing. I didn't have a clue. No, to, <laughs> now that I remember, I remember writing a piece and sending it to Ian, and then I forgot all about it. <laughs> oh, well, well, well. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, so... So Harvest Home did, yeah. you know, not, nothing great. And I know that you, you said that you had 20 members in, in the beginning and that you, you hand wrote letters to them. That's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. tell me a little bit about what happened when The Crossing really kicked in. I mean, how did things change? Uh, no, you've, missed, you've, missed out, you've missed out something quite substantial. Oh, well, definitely. Fill me in. Yeah, in between Harvest Home and The Crossing was a certain little thing called Fields of Fire. And that's when it all started getting very very silly was because um fields of fire was was recorded i even remember the date it was recorded on about the third or fourth of january um at the rack studios in um north london and i was already you know i I kind of was introduced into the fold very quickly and um the band had just finished recording fields of fire and they were upstairs. I turned up, and th- there was no reason for me to be there other than it was it was good to be with my idols for the afternoon. And I remember clearly that um, Mark wasn't there. That's right. So it was Bruce, uh, Stuart, and uh, and Tony, and they were playing darts. And uh, I was wandering around thinking this was great because you know walking around a recording studio is. It's not something everyone gets to do. And I remember walking in and Steve Lillywhite was sitting there with a, his engineer called Will Gosling. And I've often wondered what happened to Will because he was without doubt one of the nicest men I've ever met. Steve Lillywhite was lovely as well. And it was a case of, oh, hi, how are you? Who are you? Sort of thing. I said, oh, I'm Martin. I'm, I run the fan club for Big Country. Do you mind if I sit here and just watch you in action? And my little claim to fame, chaps, is I was the first person in the world to hear the 12-inch mix of Fields of Fire. That's I heard it before the band did. Wow. And they, they finished that just as I was walking in. And um, I sat down and uh, Steve turned to me. He says, right, he said, tell me what you think of this. And, of course, you've got the drums going... Choo, 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 choo. 
said, that's great. That's fantastic. And he said, right, could you go upstairs and get the band, bring them down to listen to it? <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes I tell people that, and they go, no, that can't be right. I said, well, yeah. I said, the band aren't sitting there when the, the, the track's remixed. I said, I was the first person in existence to hear Feels the Fire. I heard it before the band did. And, Incredible. Uh, Oh, it was great. So then Fields of Fire got released and and Steve Lillywhite did a fantastic job on that. And he and I remember the next day, um, I Stuart was going back to Scotland and he was walking up the platform at King's Cross Station and he turned to me and he said, that 12-inch mix is fantastic, isn't it? I said, yeah, it's absolutely superb. And uh, Phonogram, uh, Phonogram Records at the time had a, a chap called Chris Briggs who was there the 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 main point of contact for um, big country yeah and Chris Biggs really believed in the band he really had you know he was going to push and push and push and um, Chris said we are going to really push this record with the um, with the record stores and with the radio stations but of course a couple of weeks later it got released and. Again, going back to this program I was talking about earlier called Top of the Pops, Top of the Pops could make or break a single. And if you could get yourselves onto Top of the Pops, you'd made it. You know, you, you were, you, that single was going to do well. And um, Stuart, uh, sorry, the band were invited onto Top of the Pops, and the record went from 31 to 13. In, in one week, and wow. then I think it, uh, it, it I think it finished up in the end at number ten in the charts, and that's when getting a single into the top ten in the charts in Britain was a really really big deal and very difficult to do, and the number of letters coming into the fan club went from about twenty a week to a hundred a day overnight. Oh my gosh! Over, overnight. And now, did you did you handwrite letters to? All of no, them. no. <laughs> and then it was a case of, right, we need to start thinking about um, designing some merchandise and we need to start thinking about issue three and, uh, and so on and so forth. But yeah, that was, uh, that was March uh, 83. And I remember that um, at the time you two were doing the war tour and you two... So record, you know, their record producer was Steve Lillywhite. So Steve Lillywhite was doing um, U2 and also doing Big Country. And um, there was a lot of mutual respect between Stuart Adamson and The Edge. And uh, the lads got invited onto the last three dates of the U2 war tour. And funnily enough, my daughter is now at Nottingham University. And a couple of weeks ago, I was standing outside the Royal Theatre in Nottingham. And I said to my wife, I remember being here the night Big Country supported you too. I said March '83. It was 33 years ago, and I was standing outside there, and I was just pointing. I said, "That's when I knew Big Country were going to be fantastic because the U2 fans really got them. They loved them. They thought they were fantastic." Mm. Oh, that's incredible. I have yeah. to. Uh, I have to ask you about uh, going back to the club again and the the, yeah, es- sure. the escalating fame of uh, of the band and what that meant for the club. So, what was your office? Did you get mail? Did did you have a desk somewhere, or did you get it at home, yeah. or how? What was yeah. your setup like? Yeah, it was well. The uh, the, the the fan club address was 123 Edgware Road, <coughs> and the the, the um, 
They, the, the management company were in partnership um, with a, a, a sort of a parent company that was nothing to do with the music business at all. I mean, from memory, I think they were a property management um, company, and they they let Ian and Alan Edwards, who was Ian's partner, they they let them have some of the offices, and then when it started to mush them out the way, we went round the back to another office that was round the back there and so you had Alan Edwards and Alan Edwards did the publicity for David Bowie, the Rolling Stones, Blondie, H2O, not H2O sorry, Hall of Notes um, and, and various other huge bands so that was Alan's job and then Ian was managing Big Country and also managing a band called The Members which I don't know if you remember them at all but they were a British sort of post-punk band Oh yeah, and we had a two-floor office um, in very nice offices they were as well and uh, had a girl working on reception called Carrie we had Jan Stevens who was um, Alan Edwards PA and a girl called Berry Chadwick who was Ian's PA and Berry Chadwick is the woman who's on the In a Big Country video I was going to say yeah I, I knew I'd heard her name before yeah Berry and Berry was one of the, my favourite people of all time, and I, I even thirty years later, I often wonder what happened to Barry because Barry was just a joy. I would have crawled across broken glass for Barry. She was just the best. So she was Ian's PA, and I used to sit in the office. I had my own desk, and <clears throat> you know, going through all the mail and what have you, and. Uh, tried to get through it and, and respond where I could and send out badges and sign photos and what have you. But as it got busier and busier and busier, that's when I kind of started getting sucked into other things. And it was great. I mean, you know, it's, this is a huge trip down memory lane for me because I haven't actually given any of this any thought for about 20 years. But no, it was it was fantastic. Oh, that's great. Brilliant. Well, let me ask you this. You said that you were getting lots of letters coming in. Can you remember? I'm sure a lot of them were just the typical you know, we love big country type of letter, but do you remember any like bizarre letters that you got? Oh, yeah. Can you tell me about some of them? (laughs) Yeah, there was one that was really funny, which was um, where uh, this girl wrote in and she said, I looked up from the, I looked up at my telly and I just screamed, you are the most gorgeous man. You are the most amazing man. Oh, I just think you're absolutely wonderful. Please send me a signed photo. And the thing was, is that it was clearly a letter written to Stuart, but she got a name. She got a name of one of the other band members all all the way through. I think from memory, I think it might have been Bruce. So she's going. When I saw you singing and you were looking to the camera with your cheeky smile and your lovely tartan shirt, oh, you're so wonderful and amazing, Bruce. And it was Bruce, 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 all the way through. And I thought this is clearly a letter to Stuart. But she's just all the way through, Bruce. You're the best singer I've ever seen. But I don't remember Bruce singing on anything. And uh, it was. And you used to get then. You see, a lot of the the demograph was. Um, 13 to 18 year olds and, and the letters were quite innocent you know, they're quite innocent, they're quite sweet and I remember there was one where this girl and I, God knows where she got this piece of paper from but it was, it was if you can imagine an A4 piece of paper in your hand, so it's the width of A4 mm-hmm. right? but the actual piece of paper is about 50 feet long so it's clearly <laughs> come off a roller somewhere <laughs> right? and she wrote she just wrote the biggest pile of shite 
imaginable <laughs> all the way down this but then added to it to add to the um add to the effect was that every line was in a different colored pen oh my so she got felt tips out <laughs> and at the time i i seem to remember this would have been around about the time that they were laying down um, in a big country. So they were laying that down as, as the track. And again, they recorded in a big country. Um, and then they were mixing the tapes and putting all the extra overdubs and overlays on at Rack Studios. So for me to get from where, where I was there to a road to Rack Studios, you know, a few stops on the, the tube. And I remember Stuart was, um, he, he was down doing some oboe. Tell you what he was, it was uh, the storm. He was doing um, vocals on the storm. Oh, wow. So he was in, he was in the, uh, the studio and his wife, Sandra, was there with uh, Callum, who at the time was about a year, maybe 18 months old. And I came in and I just had this selection of letters. And I said, Stuart, I think you might want to look at a few of these. And I, I unrolled this, like, toilet paper but it just went on and on and on and he goes what's that and i said it's from some girl up in the north of england and i said look every single line is a different color from the previous one and he said martin send her a t-shirt <laughs> he said, send her a t-shirt i said what am i charging you? he said no t-shirt and a couple of badges and he said and a signed photo and they thought that was brilliant they thought that was absolutely superb but the funny thing was is God, I've forgotten about all of this. Was I never threw a letter away? I, ne- you know, every single letter was kept for for the time that I was there. And I remember there was one time that we got this anonymous letter, and it was it was quite rude and it was quite nasty. And it, of course, in those days, people didn't have laptops or computers, so ninety percent of the letters would be handwritten. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at this letter, and it was really, really obnoxious. And it was in the same pile of letters as the one that I was saying about Stuart and the the, uh, the different coloured writing. And I brought the letter in, and I said to Stuart, I said, not every single letter is singing my praises. Have a look at this one. And it was Martin Summers is useless, and Martin, get rid of him, sack him, he's useless. And, I, you know, I, I wrote to him on the Thursday wanting some badges, and he didn't get back to me by the Saturday. And this letter was anonymous. It wasn't signed by anybody and there was no address, no nothing. And I remember that, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the band Hot Chocolate. Have you heard of Hot Chocolate? Yes, yeah. I have. Yep. Successful. And Errol Brown, the lead singer of Hot Chocolate, was in the recording studios at the same time as Stuart. Because, of course, they're different stewards, but, you know, they're different studios to work in. And Errol came through for a cup of tea and he's standing there and he was reading this letter and he was killing himself laughing. He thought this was the funniest thing he'd ever seen. (laughs) And when Errol Brown died a few years ago, I was telling people that I knew, I said, I met him in the recording studios. He was there at the same time as uh, Stuart Adamson. I said, one of the most delightful men I've ever met. He He was so funny. But getting back to this letter... So I bring the letter back to the the, um, the fan club offices or to the management company offices, and I got out every single letter that we'd had over the previous month or so until I found a letter that matched up the note paper, the handwriting, <laughs> and everything. Uh-oh. And I thought, oh, that's come from so and so in Leeds, and I rang him up. <laughs> nice. And I said. It's, it's Martin here from um, it's Martin from the fan club. What's this letter you've sent me? You know, uh, but 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 uh, 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 I said that's, that wasn't very nice. 
<laughs> Did you send him his badges? Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably said <laughs> something to shut him up. But no, we uh, we. I'm just thinking. What else? Um, you used to get a few letters that were a bit near the knuckle, and uh, you know, older older ladies, shall we say, you know, in their twenties or thirties, and they were a bit sort of, you know, they they kind of got quietly filed away. It was the case of. No, I don't think we need to complicate matters. You know, three of the three of the band are in relationships, and they don't really need to get. Yeah, I suppose you'd call them groupy style letters. Okay, and it was based, and these were people who hadn't met the band. You know, this was. Yeah, I haven't met you, but you know, if you want to meet me in such and such, no, those were quietly put to one side. But nice, not thrown away, right? Yeah, <laughs> 90% of the letters were from teenagers or people in their early 20s, and they were purely based on, on, on the music and um, a, lot of, a lot of interesting stories in there of, of, of what the music meant to people. And, and 1983 will go down as the greatest year of my life other than obviously having children and, and, and what have you. I've got nothing but incredibly fond memories of it. It was to, to be part of something that from virtually nothing, I mean, in, in January 83, nobody had heard of Big Country to uh, six months later, they had an album that was, you know, was, was in the top three album, you know, it was in the top three for about three months. It was kept off the charts by Michael Jackson. It was kept off the top. That was incredible, absolutely unbelievable. And for a nineteen-year-old to suddenly be going to all these uh, TV shows and having not just backstage passes, but access all areas, I could go wherever I wanted when they're on when they're in concert because part of the setup and and selling T-shirts at concerts and meeting fans who. It had written into the fan club and it's in and, and and i've got quite a good memory for names that's why i ended up doing my job which is it recruitment because i, I remember names quite well and meeting all these people and it was wonderful it was just the best but the band they i don't think they realized uh straight away just how much they how successful they were going to be until the crossing was released and it, it, it was it was selling by the shipload, and America, you know, America yeah. took to big country in, in an astonishing way. I mean, big country and America. I mean, I don't know if it was the name or the music or whatever, but America got it straight away, and and it, it, the American response to big country was amazing. I wish it would have endured. <laughs> yeah. yeah for the time being that's, they took that to was them. the problem you see the thing about The Crossing was it was such an anthemic album and of course it contained the track in a big country and if you talk to anybody now who's in their 30s 40s or 50s and say can you remember the band Big Country and they go oh yeah in a big country and they say yeah there was actually about five or six singles that went higher in the charts than in a big country, but nobody remembers them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, nobody remembers Chance or Fields of Fire or Wonderland. I mean, Wonderland was the highest charting single in, in the UK. And, but everyone remembers in a big country. 
and to then replicate that success on albums two, three, four, five, I think it was always going to be a struggle. I mean, um, what was Steel Town? I mean, Steel Town got to number one in the album charts, and The Crossing never did, but The Crossing was the high watermark, in, in my opinion. Funnily enough, it wasn't my favourite album. My favourite album was The Seer. Oh, but, nice. Yeah, I, just The Seer was just the, the pinnacle. And The Crossing was a, was, was a great album. They were always going to be really, really hard-pressed to, to match the impact that The Crossing had. They, they, have, a, they have a saying for it in, in England. They call it the different, difficult second album syndrome. Yeah. And, yeah, it was, it was one of those cases. But they were still selling loads of records. I mean, Steel Town was successful. The Seer was successful. Peace in Our Times was relatively successful. But each album was just falling away a little bit in terms of success. And for the band, that must have been quite tough. I wasn't involved with them by then, you know. I'd, I'd bailed out years before. Right. So for me, on an individual basis, yes, I was part of the whole scenario when they couldn't put a foot wrong. And it yeah. was fantastic. It was great. I, I want to ask you about, uh, really, the, you mentioned the foreign success. And I just want to ask you if you remember when the band broke in a different market if you started seeing waves of letters from that market oh yeah yes tell us about that it was was, on an individual basis it was that they were no real different that they weren't really that different from anything that was coming from the uk it was um you get some strange letters from japan because of course they were they were trying to write in a language that they didn't know very well and they'd they'd be very but just You'd be reading these letters and you'd think, well, that's written in English, but it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> but no, in terms of the uh, the letters that were coming through, a lot of letters on airmail paper, which is quite fun because, you know, that was very flimsy and you'd be thinking, careful, because you could accidentally tear this paper. But no, in terms of the content of the letters, they were not really any different from what you were getting in, in the UK. A lot of... Um, this album has meant this to me. This album, this is why I love the band so much. This is what you, this is what you bring to the table. Um, no, it's fine. There wasn't a huge amount of difference in content or, or or love of the band. It was kind of fairly constant throughout the country. They were very popular from memory. They were very very popular in Scandinavia. I remember that yeah. they were very popular in Germany and. America and Australia, but elsewhere in Europe, not really. No, it, but Scandinavia, yeah, definitely. The yeah, many tra- high charting yeah, singles yeah. over here. And when Scandinavians, I, re- I remember Scandinavians had a great love of, of of rock and heavy rock and heavy metal. <laughs> And uh, so the the Germans, you know, some good bands came out of um, those countries. And, yeah, they, they liked the guitar-based flavor of the band. But in terms of letters, no letters spring out after all this time. And I said, oh, I remember this letter. I remember that. I probably will now in about five hours' time. <laughs> and I'll bring you back. But, no, the... Um, in terms of the actual content, it was a fair, it was fairly constant. An awful lot of appreciation of the band for their musical output, rather than because there was nothing. You know, they they weren't 
in in those days they were wearing uh yeah, they were wearing tartan shirts with the sleeves ripped off in and sort of half mast trousers and so they they didn't set out to be a um a girl you know, what would you call it um not a boy band but they didn't set out to to attract the teeny bot market they were musicians first and foremost who were incredibly talented all four of them yes. and so many people appreciated them for their musical abilities rather than anything else. Well, let's, so, yeah, it was good. It was a good time. Well, let me ask you this, Martin. If you could talk a little bit about your impressions of each of the members from that time period, yeah, sure. I mean, maybe just give a, a little anecdote or two about uh, each guy. And yeah, no, that's not a problem. Um, well, Stuart, of course, was my big idol because of the skids. And I felt when I was in Stuart's company that I was in the presence of a very great man. And, um, you know, I, I, I was mindful that I didn't really want to talk about you know, what happened in 2001, other than the fact it was a terrible, terrible tragedy and a terrible loss. But Stuart just, he, he exuded extremely high intelligence, extremely creative, just he was the sort of person that when he walked into the room he he just seemed to fill the room with his presence which was extraordinary and the weird thing about Stuart was whenever you saw the um you know the promotion I mean did do you guys do you guys meet the band yourselves you you met them didn't you there's pictures of you yeah I've met Stuart a couple of times yep and yeah. we, we had some correspondence and spoke and... so so Stuart um Whenever you saw pictures of him, you said Stuart, he's a big, imposing man. Stuart was kind of the same size as me. He was the same height. But he just had this presence. He had this aura about him that was just, you, you, if you could bottle it, you, you, you'd become a millionaire. So that was Stuart. Bruce was the guy you went down the pub with. And Bruce was the, if, you, if, if, if there's such a phrase, he was almost like the anti-pop star in that, Bruce did not change one iota in, in that period. He was the normal bloke who just happened to be an amazingly uh, talented guitarist. And he was just totally normal, incredibly funny. Very, very funny. <laughs> yeah, I that's mean, very true. A talented writer as well. He used to do um, this thing for... Um, some of the, uh, the the fan scenes where he'd write about tour diaries and stuff, and very very intelligent man, but just just he was just so normal. He you know there was nothing about Bruce that you think that guy's in a band that's got a record that's just shifted half a million copies. So he was just you know just the no most normal guy. Tony. Just he was once called the nicest man in rock and roll by Rolling Stone magazine, and it was true. He was just he, he was just a, a very very nice guy. The thing about Tony and Mark was they'd been around the block a few times. They'd been session musicians for a long time. They they'd been in bands that hadn't been at all successful. They'd done the circuit. They knew what it was like to be to be a, a fairly thankless task, playing in front of ten people in a pub on a Saturday night. So again. When the success came their ways, in the in the, the case of Mark and um, Tony, they were they were a little bit older than Stuart and quite a bit older than Bruce. So Mark and Tony had kind of earned the right to their success, and when it came, it didn't go to their heads. And very grounded individuals, Mark again, he, he was a nice fellow. 
Um, he had a he 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 was a bit of a prankster. I mean, from what I remember, he he would uh, be he was a quiet guy, you know, quietly spoken, didn't say very much. But he would be the one that might go into somebody's room on a tour and completely re- rearrange their room. So when somebody comes in thinking, where the hell's my bed gone? And you've reminded me, actually, one story that um, I was, when I was on the tour selling uh, the T-shirts on the uh, tour in April 83. And one night I got very, very, very drunk. And Bruce got him and uh, a couple of fans that were staying in the hotel that night and uh, a couple of the road crew picked up my bed when I was fast asleep in it and took me out to the hotel lift and left me going up and down for about two or three hours until I woke up. And then I was completely disorientated. <laughs> yeah, I and guess so. I went to the reception and said, excuse me, um, I was in room 106 or whatever. I don't seem to be... Um, and my bed seems to be in the lift. And... <laughs> What I didn't realise was that Bruce, as a finishing touch, also had put lipstick and mascara and rouge all over my face. So there I am standing at reception trying to get a key for my room and I was made up like a drag queen and didn't realise. So that's the kind of sort of stuff that you'd have to put up with with them. And uh, That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. No, they were just, Bruce, was, Bruce was great fun. I mean, well, you can tell when he did the podcast that he does with... Um, you know the little videos he does with Jamie and stuff. Bruce just had a very, very fun, bubbly outlook on life. He really did. And as I said, pop stars, not a chance. You you would never. <laughs> if you're walking down the street with them, and um, you would never ever think you were in the presence of somebody who was sitting at the top of the the, the charts because they just weren't like that at all. Just normal, normal blokes. Oh, that's great. Real terrific fellas. Well, let, let me take a, a little left turn here for a second. I know Spine's going to want to jump in on this. Um, one, one thing that I thought was interesting is that in the early issues of the magazine, you guys would occasionally interview other bands. Or, uh, oh, yeah. And, yeah. And I know you talked about in, in the letter that was published in um, issue 50, you talked about interviewing Motorhead and getting yeah, a lot of yeah. grief for that from the fans, and yet you thought it was yeah. a great interview. So. Uh, Spine is a huge Motorhead fan, so tell me a little bit about how that came about. Well, what happened was I was actually supposed to interview Elton John, and uh, Elton John would have, because Elton John was on the same record label as Big Country, he was on Phonogram at the same time, and uh, so they phoned up, and and it was Alan Edwards who hit hit upon the idea of us interviewing. us interviewing another band. I thought it was a terrible idea. I thought it was absolutely <laughs> appalling. But they said he, said, he said it'll fill up a few pages. I thought, oh, Jesus, all right then. So, uh, <laughs> so I then went to, um, and we were supposed to do Elton John, but Elton John wasn't in the country. And he did say he would have done it. And uh, so then somebody said, Motorhead. And I thought, oh, you've got to be kidding. And uh, I remember the interview was booked for the Monday afternoon up at uh, their bronze records up in Camden Town. And it was around about August, September time. And I'm sitting there in the big country office, and I suddenly thought, I don't know anything about Motorhead. I've heard Ace of Spades, and that's kind of it. And I thought, right. 
I'd better phone up Bronze Records and see if they'll send over a couple of records. And they sent over the entire back catalogue of Motorhead. And I've got sitting in my garage my vinyl collection, and in there is about six or seven albums by Motorhead. <laughs> wow. All press, you know, do not resell press, press copies or, or um, record company copies. And I sat there for the weekend listening to Motorhead and just thinking, oh, my God, I've got to interview these guys on, on Monday. And um, I turned up and I couldn't do shorthand. I didn't have to do that. So I was given a little recording thing to, to do the interview. And, of course, me being an idiot, I didn't test it before I left the office. And when I got to the uh, Bronze Records, the first thing that happened was that um, this – this guy at Bronze Radio, oh, he was a lovely bloke, and he said, uh, you know, would you like a drink? And I said, yeah, just an orange juice. He said, would you like some something strong in it? I went, no, not really. And he said, no, no, would you like something? I said, no, I really wouldn't like anything in it. <laughs> and uh, I think there was, a, there was about four inches of vodka in this bloody thing. And so I'm sitting there with this huge big glass of orange, vodka and orange, and the band was sitting in front of me, and they just finished a tour, I seem to remember. And... Um, Two minutes into the interview, this little recording device I had that was about the size of today's smartphones, suddenly it just went beep, and Lemmy said, is it boiled yet? And I said, oh, God, <laughs> I don't know how to get that thing working again. So I just, I just then uh, freewheeled. I just sat there and chatted to them. I didn't write any notes. Just I thought I'll commit all of this to memory and see, how, see what I come up with. And um, Lemmy was... A joy. He was the nicest, nicest man. He was just—I I can't praise him en enough. He knew I was nervous. He knew I was outside my comfort zone. He knew I knew next to nothing about Motorhead, but he accommodated all of that. And we, funnily enough, spent quite a bit of time talking about Duran Duran, which was a bit weird. And some of the things that Lemmy was talking about were completely off-piste, nothing to do with Motorhead at all. And then um, Filthy Phil, the drummer, was with him, and he, he was just, you know, he was just a, a South London lad, and he told me that he lived in Chelsea. Well, I lived in Putney, which is near Chelsea, so that was a bit of an icebreaker, so we were able to chat about that. And at the time, the guitarist they had with them was Brian Robertson, who'd been in Thin Lizzy and a couple of other bands. And, um, yeah, it was, it was about an hour brought it home, you know, I came home, scribbled out everything I could think of and then got it all typed up. And I remember quite a few people had a lot to say about that interview. And to be honest with you guys, I don't blame them. You know, a lot of the letters that were coming in were, we signed up to the Big Country Fan Club. Why do you think we're remotely interested in anything Motorhead have got to say? And I was, I agreed with them. I agreed with them. I thought, yeah, you're right. I, yeah. It was. It wasn't that I was coerced into doing it. It was just. It was. It. It would fill a few pages. It is a rather odd idea. And when I went back to look at at some of those, stupid. I thought, "Wow, that's strange." It was bloody stupid. It was a ridiculous idea. But who and, came up with it? I have to ask you. Uh, maybe I missed it. But why Motorhead? And because they were available. <laughs> yeah. That's the only reason why. So it, it could just, have been anyone, huh? Could have been anyone. No. Yeah. I mean, it could have been anyone. It was whoever was willing to give some 19-year-old idiot the time of day and just, <laughs> uh, just let him ask you a few questions and then send him on his way. I could Anyone who would have been available. It would have made more sense if it had been you 2 or Simple Minds. If yeah. it was one of those two bands. But, yeah, it was Motorhead. And uh, 
all I can say is I've got it on my CV that I've broken bread with Lemmy, and when he died, uh, when he died a, a couple of months ago, um, I think I put something on Facebook about that. that yeah, you what, did. What, yeah, on our, on our page, actually. Yeah, that, that's how oh, I yeah. first came over your name, that you posted oh, that yeah, link, yeah. and I, I so appreciated that at the time, because that was the day after he passed or something. Oh, lovely fellow. And, and like I told you just before this call, I, I saw Motorhead two weeks before he yeah, passed. No, so... Um, that was uh, something I appreciated. So that that cemented your name. So and here and we are. Real deal, Lemmy. You see, Lemmy was what you got was what you, you know. What you saw is what you got. There was no stage persona there. Absolutely. He was Lemmy twenty four seven, and that no, is just a delightful man. And the funny thing is, is as you can imagine, nineteen year old kid meeting all of these famous uh, musicians and all of these famous rock stars, and I found that the more famous they were the nicer they were. Interesting. Yeah, it was the one-hit wonders who were up there on the backsides. And you had people, <laughs> people who got their first hit into the charts and they said, don't talk to me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the famous musician. No, you're not. You've got, you've got a single out that's at 20 in the charts. Yeah. Whereas Errol Brown of Hot Chocolate, Midgeur, who, you know, went on to do Live Aid, Midgeur had a very successful band called Ultravox at the time. He was fantastic. Lemmy... Paul Young, who was a, a, a famous uh, singer at the time, yeah. all of these really famous people were an absolute delight. It That's was the one-hit wonders who were a pain. And Lemmy was a fan of Big Country. Uh, did he mention them in the interview at all? Because yeah, I, yeah, he said he, he said that he really, really liked um, he, he liked Chance. Oh, I, I, I put that into there or not, but he said that he thought that Big Country were great. The thing that Lemmy, which he said, which I will always remember, and I didn't realize at the time that he was actually mangling a quote from um, somebody else. I think it's Voltaire, but Lemmy said something along the lines of, you know, I do not necessarily like the output of certain bands, and, you know, because you know, at the time it was an awful lot of synth music in the charts, and he said, I may not like the output from this band or that band, but I'll defend to the death their right to put it out. And I thought, mm. that's terribly profound. That's, I didn't really like <laughs> Nick that quote from Voltaire, I think it is. <laughs> it was brilliant. And I thought, yeah, good for you, mate. Good for you. No, fantastic guy. That's I was very sad. I was very sad when he died. Very Aww, sad. That's, that's, yeah. that's amazing that you had that experience with him. Best story I ever heard. And I, I believe it's true. One question I had was, you mentioned that you... Uh, were present with the band when they did TV tapings and things like that. Are, are there any yeah. particular um, episodes of, of those that stand out to you that were... Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you look on YouTube, Fields of Fire, there's one that I can't remember because they did Fields of Fire on Top of the Pops twice, but the one that sticks in my mind, there's a guy standing right in front of Stuart who looks like a big country fan. He's got the tartan shirt, clapping his hands. That... That was me. And what happened ah. was I wasn't, I wasn't supposed to be in the studio at all because it's very, very strict. You know, Top of the Pops was one of those things where it was, it was the program. You know, I've mentioned this a couple of times already, but it was the program. And it was every band's ambition to get on Top of the Pops. And what people who watched it every Thursday night, I mean, we're talking about viewing figures of 20 million. It was a hugely successful um, program. And what people didn't realize was that it was clever camera work. And if they made it look as if there was about 500 people in the studio when it was nearer, probably about 150. And they moved the cameras around to make it look as if it was a, a concert. And um, what happened was that you could only get into Top of the Pops 
if you were either a band member or you had a ticket. And there was like a three-year waiting list to get tickets for this show. And Stuart hit upon the idea of, I was wearing the sleeveless shirt, you know, I was, I, I was copying the, the, the fashion of the band. And as we were walking towards the studios from uh, Big Country's dressing room, Stuart said to me, just walk along with a, a, a guitar in your hand. So the commissioner is there and he sees his band walking towards him and doesn't bother to check on his um, clipboard that Big Country aren't actually a five piece. He didn't bother to look down and think there should only be four of them walking past me, <laughs> not five. And as soon as I walked into the studio, I then handed the guitar back to Bruce and that's me in. And uh, just before you hear the, the track coming over, Tony leant forward to me and he said, right, he said, we need a favour of you. He said, pretend you're at a concert. He said, if you stand in front of Stuart and clap and jump up and down, he said, the rest of them will follow you. And they did. <laughs> oh, and it's great. on YouTube 30 odd years later. So if you see a blonde guy. I'm going back, back to search for that. Yeah, it's the it's the top of the pops one. So I did that one. Uh, I, yeah, I did top of the pops four times, which is pretty good, and various other um, recordings. But what you don't see is the endless hanging around. Yeah, you you can hang around for hours for what takes two or three minutes to to film. And there was a few that they did. I remember there was a couple of shows that were not so well known where they were promoting Chance. I particularly remember Chance. And they'd go to they would go to a, a kid's Saturday morning program, and they would have had to be there since five. Wow! And it's very very difficult to be up 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 when you've been sitting there and they're getting the lighting right and they're getting that right, and then of course the program goes out live and you just the band would be sitting there thinking, when is this ever going to end? But that was that affected all bands, and it was part and parcel of of, of getting your product out there. I didn't realize that went out live. Interesting. Some of the no top. Funnily enough, the thing about Top of the Pops, you just reminded me of something. If you go back to that episode that I'm talking about, um, actually, it won't be on YouTube because it'd just be big country on its own. But that that one was the first time in years that Top of the Pops went from being recorded on a Wednesday and shown on a Thursday to it going out live on a Thursday. And so Big Country did the you know Fields of Fire, and then there was this other singer called Nick Haywood. And if you guys look this up, Nick Hayward, Top of the Pops, Whistle Down the Wind. All right, it was, he'd been in a band called Haircut 100. They'd had a few hits. And this was his first solo effort. This is going out live to 20-odd million people. And as the tape starts and Nick Hayward starts singing, he's actually got his um, head turned away from the mic and just looking off into the distance. And all around me, all these uh, TV engineers were going, oh, my God, oh, my God, sing, 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 because he was miming. Right. But he wasn't. He wasn't even looking at his microphone. This was going out live. It was great. It was, <laughs> there, there, was, there, there was all these TV engineers going, oh, no, no, this is the end of Top of the Pops if he doesn't start singing. And me cackling away laughing right next to them. And yeah, that, oh, they, that's fantastic. They, they, that, Top of the Pops did go out live, but it was, yeah, it was mimed. I mean, they were miming to the backing track. I have to ask something here because yeah, Tom, and I, Tom and I in the past have um, had a snicker or two at Big Country's ability to mime. They did not seem very comfortable with it in the beginning. Uh, do you remember anything about that and how they yeah. felt about it's, miming? It's difficult. It's difficult to mime because the thing is, is that. If you could imagine, right, say now, 
okay, at the end of this, right, either of you, you go off and you, you sing along to in a big country, let's say. All right, so you're singing it and it's either on your, it's either on your iPod or it's on a stereo, etc. And you're singing along to it because you're sure. your dinner, what have you. All right, happy days. Not so easy to do if the sound's coming from 30 or 40 feet away. And that's uh-huh. what you get. Was, so you, what you had was, and I remember this when um, they did Fields of Fire at the top of the pop studio, is they've got their instruments and they're not plugged in, but they can hear them because as Tony's hitting the bass strings, he can hear that. He can hear him hitting his own bass strings. So he's trying to play along to a backing track that's off in the distance somewhere, and it gets a bit confusing because he can hear himself playing, and it's not plugged into an amp, it's not plugged in. Yeah. Of course, you hear Stuart and, and, and um, Bruce, you can hear them hitting their strings, and of course behind them is Mark, and of course he's hitting a drum kit. So he's <laughs> playing along to a backing track that's coming from 30, 40 feet away, and it's getting drowned out by the sound of, it, sound of his own drums. Wow. So yes, it's very difficult to do. Very, very difficult. Yeah, so, ab- so, absolutely. In fairness, yeah. it's uh, it's not an easy thing to do. But uh, they seem definitely to be much more happy playing live. Oh, I don't yeah. know if that was great even live. a possibility for those type of shows. Yeah, they were great live. My favorite ever big country concert was the tour they did in um, to in nineteen eighty three. They did about a twelve day tour. And, uh, you know, I, I accept that your guys' um, sort of ge- geography, geographical knowledge of, of England is probably not, you know, as, as good as mine. But whoever put that tour together needed shooting because they, they were going <laughs> from, they would play Portsmouth on the Monday night and then Nottingham two nights later. It was 150 miles away. And then up to Dundee, which was 200 miles, and then back down to, and it was, it was zigzagging all over the country. And you just think to yourself, Hey, I mean, this would be, I suppose the American equivalent would be California, Florida, Maine, and then back to California. How <laughs> you sort of work your way across the country? And, um, but they, they did a, a concert at the Sunderland Poly, and Polytechnics were universities. And universities back in the 80s were so up their own backsides that they wouldn't allow people to come to the concerts if they weren't students. So there's wow. big country playing Sunderland Poly, and um, non-students weren't allowed in. That was good. Never has, there been, never has there been so many people on the guest list as there was that night. I mean, there, was, there was kids coming up, and they were almost in tears. And they're saying, because, again, you know, it goes back to the thing of, in those days, you, you paid on the door, you paid your three quid or whatever, and you, you went in. And it was a case of, you know, I, I love big country. I, I love them. I, 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 you know, I, but they won't let me in. I'm not a student. I said, sorry, did you say, what did you say your name was? Oh, you're on the guest list. Am I? Yeah, as of about five seconds ago. In you come. And it was a, it was a case of sod you to the student union bodies because, of course, they then didn't get any money for that. So they played Sunderland Poly and there was, I'd say, I don't know, there's about four or 500 people in the audience of whom a good 60 or 70 were on the guest list. A guest list would normally, for that level of concert in Sunderland, where none of the band knew anybody who lived in Sunderland. I certainly didn't. The guest list would probably normally consist of nobody. There'd be nobody on the guest list. And suddenly I just walked over and I said, there you go, there's the guest list. And there was about 70 names on it (laughs) because it was all these big country fans who the students 
the student body wouldn't let them come in because they weren't students. So it's a case of, well, they're on the guest list. You have to let them in. <laughs> That's you great. Which resulted in that was the best big country concert I think I ever went to. I was at the back selling T-shirts. But because you had these 60 or 70 people who were grateful on two levels. One, they were seeing their heroes for the first time. Yeah. But two, they knew they weren't supposed to be there and they'd been let in for nothing. They went mental. <laughs> they, had, they had to do six encores. Oh, my God. They did six encores. <laughs> and, it, and I think Stuart got, took the attitude of, I'm gonna, we're just going to keep back, coming back on stage until the student union body pulled the plug on us. Because I think they, it was Stuart's way of saying, well, you, you tried to dictate to us who was allowed in, so we're going to piss you off by continuing to play and play. And they were running out of songs. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it was a case of they, they played about two or three songs two or three times because they had to. I was going to say, they used to repeat songs back then, I remember, too, occasionally. Yeah, but they had to because at that point, In a Big Country hadn't even been written. So you're talking about all of the albums, um, all of the stuff that was on the first album, plus Angle Park, Balcony, and then it was, right, what else do we do? Which leads me on to something I must tell you, chaps, and I've just remembered this, was... When um, I used to do the, uh, when I did that first tour, and I would turn up with the the the, the back the, the lorry that had all the musical equipment in it because that's that had all the t-shirts and the sweatshirts and stuff, and then I'd go and find somewhere to set up, and quite often, I mean, a few of the places that we played, um, the t-shirts would be in the auditorium, so I'd spend the entire evening not being able to see the band because I was in, you know, I was out the front somewhere, but there was one or two venues where. I could set up at the back of the hall. Happy days. And they did a concert, uh, Red Cars, Coast and Bowl, and um, they were doing a sound check. And the thing was, was that the sound check would normally take place at about three, four, five o'clock in the afternoon. And then the band would go back to the hotel, unwind, and then come back two hours later. And Stuart was there, and I was setting up all the T-shirts and all the badges and stuff. And... Uh, Stuart said into the microphone, said, right, come on, let's give this one a try. And next thing he started playing this song. And Bruce and uh, Tony joined in and Mark was doing the, the, the background. And the only person who was in the audience, because it was a sound check, was me. And I'm just standing there watching them. Wow. And when Stuart finished, I went up to him and I said, that was brilliant. That was really good. He said, do you think so? And I said, yes, yeah, fantastic song. He said, yeah, he said, we're going, to have, we're going to showcase that this evening. It would be the first time we do it. And I said to him, when did you write that? What, what, did you write that whilst we'd been on tour? And this was about six days into the tour. And he said, sorry, what? I said, when did you write that? That's a great song. They'd done Tracks of My Tears. <laughs> and Stuart looked, at me, Stuart looked at me and he said, are you taking the piss? And I said, um, <laughs> Sorry, am I missing something here? And Tony came over and he said, Tracks of My Tears is by Smokey Robinson. I said, sorry, who is Smokey Robinson? I've never heard of it. I didn't have a clue. And Stuart said, Martin, you can take it as read that I did not write Tracks of My Tears. He said, it's not one of mine. He said, Tears of a Clown, 
No, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, sorry, I've never heard of Smokey Robinson. I, I, <laughs> musically, I'd led a very sheltered upbringing. But yeah, I thought Stuart had written it the night before. <laughs> of course, great. Tracks of My Tears was the B-side to Chance. And yeah, one of the great, great cover versions. Brilliant version of Tracks of My Tears. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, listen, I, we, we appreciate your time so much. Let me just ask you one more to kind of wrap it up here. Oh, no, my pleasure. Oh, thank you. Uh, just to bring it back to uh, to Country Club, I mean, tell us a little bit about how that ended for you. And Yeah, no, it was, it was very straightforward. Okay. Is that it, I really didn't know what I was doing. And um, I... It was a labor of love. I, you know, I wasn't... I, w- I was getting paid a sort of a salary but I wasn't if you know what I mean I was so it wasn't about money but my mother just announced in early 84 that she was going back to Ireland to live and she was she was kind of I'm, I'm, I've sold the house uh, she just got divorced from my first stepdad she met my second stepdad and she wanted to set up a new life with him in Ireland and it was a case of oh I need to go and get myself another job you know a proper job that had a wage because I had to leave home and uh, I went off and became a, a, a lorry driver literally overnight. And because of that, I couldn't be driving lorries and running a fan club at the same time. And it <laughs> spiraled completely out of control. I mean, as soon as The Crossing was released, they should have taken the fan club and, and, and handed it over to a company. that. And in those days, you did have companies that ran fan clubs and they ran them as proper businesses. And they ran them in the case of, right, you will undertake to have four magazines a year. You will do this. You will do that. And have a contract in place with the band and with the band's management company. And the, I think it was a case of the crossing was so successful so quickly that, the yeah, I suppose it was a minor casualty, but it was a casualty nonetheless, was the fan club. I mean, the fan club was when I was running it, 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 for the last three or four months, it was a shambles because I really was so over my head. Um, I just couldn't cope. And, you know, when, when I used to send out the magazine to everybody, I had a list of a thousand names and addresses and I had to r- handwrite label after label after label and then take them up in groups of a hundred to the post office and put them all through the Frankie machine one after the other. And, and if, you know, it was very unfair on the fans because a fan would send in a, a check or a money order or a postal order, as you had in those days, and they would want their sweatshirt. They would want their, um, they would want, you know, they want their badges. And it might take three or four weeks for me to get them out for simple reason that I might be on tour with the band for that two or three weeks. You know, I might be actually away from London, and you'd come back to a mountain of email and the funny thing is and i've forgotten this till about 10 seconds ago actually was that i used to contact fan club members and say to them if you come in and help me i will guarantee you uh you plus three uh free tickets for the next time big country play in london and uh you know i'll chuck in a couple of sweatshirts do this and there was about four or five um, fan club members who took me up on that, but they never came back a second time because they could see the workload was just crazy. So, and I was sad. I, I was sad to leave it. I didn't leave on bad terms. It just, I couldn't do it anymore. I just couldn't cope. And for many years afterwards, I thought to myself, what might have been in terms of sticking at it? And, and st- But 
you know, I just couldn't do it anymore. And it was a shame, but I look like, well, you can tell I've been talking to you guys for over an hour now. You can tell <laughs> I look back on it with unbelievable fondness. Oh, yeah. It, Your enthusiasm it, comes through so great and so wonderfully. Yeah, and it, it must I mean, have been was, an incredible time, magical time. Yeah, it was, I mean, you, you, you know, sitting there talking to the likes of Bono and, and, uh, and, and you too and being half Irish myself, you know, I was able to chat to them about ireland and what have you and and meeting all these really famous people and going to all these yeah, being treated like something really special because you were tacked on to the end of a band that were going from strength to strength but i just couldn't do it anymore it just it just became impractical and it was a shame but i don't think it was ever held against me i mean any time I saw the band after that, if they were playing concerts in London, I would I would toodle along. Ian Grant, you know, fair play to him. He always put me on the guest list. It was always me plus a couple of people. And any time I saw the band, Bruce Stewart, Tony Mark, you know, they'd always say, hi, how you doing? Nice to see you again. They always remembered me. Nobody begrudged me it because it was just something. I was 19. I couldn't cope. Yeah. I just couldn't cope. Yeah. But it was great. It was fantastic. And did you keep up with the band uh, throughout that? Yeah, I mean, have yeah. you been like a lifelong fan? And yeah, I've still I've bought everything they've ever released. And um, if you want, a, if if you want a quick snapshot of if if, if I had to take five songs with me to the desert island, mm. the Buffalo Skinners, the the, tr- the B side to Ships. How wonderful! Um, the Sailor, yeah, of the Seer. Uh, what else really does it for me? Um, Hold the heart fantastic song mm. funnily enough there's a live version of ships now i cannot remember which album it's off but there's because there's quite a few live versions of ships kicking around on youtube yeah. but there's one that absolutely nails it and that makes me you know it makes me cry when i hear it because stuart was so good he was so so talented um the album that they released with mike peters um, I loved um, Hurt. I thought that was a great song. And you know, my personal opinion on what Mark and um, Bruce are doing now is they're absolutely within their rights to keep the flame alive. They can carry on till they're 90 if that's what they want to do. Nobody has got the right to say to them, you know, Big Country ended when Stuart passed away. Nobody's got that right. If they want to keep making a lot of people happy and keep doing all those concerts, they, they do all power to their elbow because I think it's great that they're keeping it going. Every time they get on stage, it's um, you know it's a homage, if you like, to Stuart mm. and the brilliant music that they um, they produced. And yeah, I. Oh, um, See You, See You of the Driving to Damascus album. That's the other track that absolutely nails me when I hear that. Wow. And I will, I will remain a fan forever. I will, I, I will never not be a fan. And uh, they were, them, the Skids, the Army Show, they, 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 have, they hold a special place in my heart. And whilst I'm talking to you guys, I'm looking at, I'm in my office at home and I've probably got about 1,500 CDs in here, and nothing will ever quite hit the spot in the way that Big Country have done. And I, ho- I, I hope I, you organize your CDs better than Tom does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not take chance. They're all over the shop. But, uh, <laughs> good for you. Good for you. No, I, I, just, uh, I, I just thought they were a fantastic band. They should. The biggest, biggest tragedy 
for them professionally was not being on Live, Live Aid. Aid. Yeah, I knew that was coming. Yeah. If they'd been on Live Aid, they would have been as big as you too. And I'll leave you with this note, guys, is um, when um, they were recording The Crossing, I was sitting there one night chewing the fat with Steve Lillywhite. And at that point, U2 had released four albums, three albums, sorry. They'd released Boy, October and War. And Steve Lillywhite was, had, had, had produced all three albums for U2 and had just put the finishing touches to The Crossing and it was just about to be released. And Steve turned to me and he said, you two, because of their lead singer and because of their charisma, he said they've got a very, very big future in front of them. He said, Bono is the most self-confident man I've ever met and he's going to take that band and they're going to be something really big. He said, but musically, as musicians, he said, they don't hold a candle to big country. And I said, oh, Steve, you're only saying that because I'm singing. He said, no. He said, I know what I'm talking about. He said, big country are the best musicians I've ever worked with. He said, all four of them are absolute geniuses. Wow. Amazing. And he, and, and he said... I can't argue uh, with that. <laughs> yeah. And he, and he said, Bruce was the best guitarist he'd, he'd ever seen. Really? Wow. Bruce. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And I said, but Stuart does all, he said, Stuart does all the lead stuff. And he said, yeah, he said, Stuart is the inspiration. Stuart is the brain. Stuart is, uh, you know, he, he is the, 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 the music comes from Stuart. He said, yeah, he goes, I get all of that. He said, Bruce makes a guitar talk. He, he said, watch him. He said, watch him. He, is, 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 is this, if he's humming along, he, it's just so effortless to Bruce. I'd never, th- I'd never thought of it like that. But the next time I saw them live, I thought, yeah, he's got a point, actually. <laughs> Bruce, just, amazing. Just Bruce, it's just, it's so easy. Well, and, said, one, and one thing, yeah. a lot of the, the stuff that Bruce has done with Mark over the last you yeah. know decade or so has really, I think, shed light on, the, on how important yeah. he was in the beginning that a lot of us didn't realize. Oh, yeah. No, Steve, Steve Lillywhite picked up on that. He said, Bruce is the best guitarist I've ever, ever been in the same room as. Wow. And... Incredible. And he said that uh, he said Stuart and Bruce together. He said it's it's an absolute pleasure. And then he said, and then you've got behind them a rhythm section who was so good that they made out a career out of hiring themselves out to other bands. He <laughs> yeah. said he said these four could take on the world. And the big big uh, you know from a profession tragedy is an overused word. The, the the really really sad thing was them not being on live aid because that would have put them in the stratosphere. Yeah, I agree. who knows where they would have ended up. Wow, absolutely, Martin, you're a star. That's yes, right. Thank you so much you for talking are. with us today. It was a very very happy time of my life. There was some great fun in there. Uh, some you know just some brilliant brilliant times. Some of them can't go out on a podcast, <laughs> but the, uh, no, it, was, it was great fun and four nicer guys you couldn't wish to have been involved with. And, uh, you know, it was, it, you, you brought up, oddly enough, a lot of very happy memories because it's not something I've really thought about for a long time Aww. until this evening. Well, that's so, great. That makes us happy. Yeah, and, uh, and the post hour has been wonderful for us. It really before has. Before I go, Thank you. Thank I go your, your top three songs each. Come on, oh. your top three. Oh, this is so difficult, Martin. Top three. This, we're saving this for the very last and final episode we do. There'll, be, there'll never be a last one. There'll never be a last one. <laughs> I, I'll have to say uh, Where the Roses Song, because that was the song that got me into the band. 
Um, in a combat zone. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just fantastic. Yeah. yeah. No, and and um, some of these will change, but off the top of my head, you said The Sailor. I have to agree with you. One of my all-time favorites. And um, I guess I'll throw in uh, I Lead On because that, that might be uh, right up there, too. So Interesting. A lot of people like I Lead On, I Lead On. Yeah, a lot of people like that. Yeah, yeah, interesting. How about you, Stein? I will pick uh, The Storm. <laughs> and I will pick Steel Town, the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I will pick All Fall Together. Ah, oh, those all are good fall choices together. too. Steel Town mm. is my absolute favorite album by anyone. So Hang on, All Fall Together isn't there two songs? No, All All Go Together is the one of the Buffalo Skinners, and All Fall Correct. Together is kind of a B side, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That was on the yeah, Wonderland so. EP. That's it. My son loves all go together. We all go together. Yeah, he Mine do that. too. Yeah. <laughs> I have a seven and five year old, and they love to sing uh, along to that. My, my boy, my boy is uh, is twenty one, and he loves the band Muse. He, and oh, he yeah. said he he's exactly thirty years younger than me, and he said, "Dad, do you think I'll still like Muse when I'm in my fifties?" And, <laughs> and chaps, I'll leave you on this last thing. Right, I'll leave you on this. Okay, and, you, and do use this was about, oh, God, it was a long time ago. I was, uh, it was about 17 or 18 years ago when my children were very, very small. And um, one day my wife said to me, don't you think you've bought enough CDs? <laughs> and I said to her, and I said, do you know, you're absolutely right. She thought, oh, good, you know, good, he's, he's finally listening. I said, you're absolutely right, I've bought enough CDs. I've also read enough books. I've seen enough TV programs and I've been to the cinema enough times. It's my funeral next week. <laughs> nice. And she said, what do, you mean, what do you mean by that? I said, there's never such a thing as buying too many CDs. Though I have to say in this day and age with Spotify, that kind of circumvents it a bit. Yeah, I, yeah. That's kind I, of I, easy I way to, at it. Yeah, I, I listen to Spotify and if something really grabs me by the throat, then I go and buy it. So it saved me a fortune. But no, there's no such thing as buying too many CDs or having too many downloads. You know and, you can find you can find my album on Spotify. I'll have a look. I'll have a look. <laughs> we'll edit this part out. Thanks, <laughs> hey, so, chaps. It's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this, and uh, we really appreciate your time. Chaps, it's been great. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Martin. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, that was Martin Warner, also known as Martin Summers in the early days of Country Club magazine, and we can't thank Martin enough for his time and his stories, and I just felt like... Uh, I really felt like we just scratched the surface in a way. I bet there's there's a lot more that we could have talked to him about, but we didn't want to have another uh, four-hour, five-part show necessarily. So <laughs> That's what we do. That's what we're known for. <laughs> but that was fun. I think, I think it was very fun. And I, it was especially fun, I think, to just hear the memories come back to him as we spoke with him. And he, he would say many times, oh, I just remembered this 10 seconds ago. Yeah. And then we get the story. And that's that's just awesome. So who knows how much more will come uh, with a little bit more time and listening back to the episode. And who knows? There, yeah. There's there's room for a part two, perhaps, way down the road. That's right. Martin, if you're listening to this, uh, yeah, maybe we can have you on again sometime as you recall more of these great stories. I especially love the story about the uh, the student union and, and how they put all those people <laughs> on the guest list. That was just priceless. That was great. And uh, obviously, I, 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 I'm very fond of that Motorhead story. But uh, yeah. 
you gotta you gotta think when when you have stories such as the student union and hanging around top of the pops or just all these things hanging in the record studio with with big country and meeting all these other people why don't you put that in instead of a motorhead into you instead yeah. of other artists so that that's um uh, I guess part of it is when you live these things, you don't think of it so much. Mm-hmm. And you see countless examples of anyone. While you live it, it's just, uh. and it's kind of the fans who uh, who kind of analyze everything they do. Well, bands, and I guess when you're part of that circle, you're sort of part of that, then you just get done with it. Yeah. So, so it's understandable. But yeah. uh, I think that would have been great to put some of that in. But hey, at least we got it now. I it's a scoop. So yeah, it was, it was great. But yeah, that's our, that's our show. That's episode 58, and we hope you guys have enjoyed this. Um, we were happy, I think, to go back to a, a looser format, get an interview in with somebody, and it's just fun for us, too, to listen to these stories. So it's, I hope you guys enjoyed it. And as always, send us an email. Tell us what you think. Um, any any comments like that really mean a lot to us, and we appreciate all those that we've gotten. BigCountryPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. Just search for The Great Divide Podcast. And uh, we'll be back as soon as we can with the next one. So who knows when that will be. But uh, Yeah, and, uh, and do leave a comment on the Facebook page, uh, what you think, because Martin will read that too. And, yeah, Martin uh, is a member of our page. Yep. Yeah, so, so I know he will... He will be curious to see how you how you feel like, and I think we can all be grateful for all the work he did in the beginning. And he totally sells himself short, but uh, that's just the modest English chap that he is. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, fantastic. So uh, we will see you next time. We will see you soon, and um, I guess that's it. Fare thee well. Bye bye. <laughs> no fairy fate today. I didn't. I didn't give him the fairy fate. No. How long does the podcast last normally? About half an hour or so, is it? Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs>